Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. This is an extension of our ministry at Emmanuel Baptist Church, where I serve as the lead pastor here in Sterling, Colorado. I'm also an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Do us a favor, if you will, if you like this podcast, if you enjoy it, if you learn from it, spread the word. Maybe link it to your Facebook page or tweet about it. Uh, Go to iTunes and give us a review and rating. We'd love to hear from you. And and we'd love to get your questions. And so if you have any questions or you have some issues you'd like to to talk about or get feedback, you can go to my website. It's seancole.net. There's all my contact information. You can email me there. You can find my Facebook link and my Twitter feed as well. So we really want to get the word out on understanding Christianity. So if you've benefited from this podcast, we'd love for you to spread the word to those in your sphere of influence. You know, recently I was thinking about the whole idea of how people level charges against the doctrines of grace or reformed theology or Calvinism, if you will. And one of the things that you often hear uh, from people from time to time, and this is an argument that's, that's lobbied against Calvinism, is, is something like this. They'll, they'll say, if you truly believe in Calvinism, if you believe in reformed theology, if you believe that God predestines people, If you believe in all of that, it's going to kill evangelism and missions. Calvinism will be the death knoll for evangelism and missions. If you really believe that, it's going to kill it. And so, how do we answer that question? Does the doctrines of grace and Calvinism and Reformed theology, does it kill evangelism and missions? Or, what I would believe to be true biblically Does it give us fuel and power and motivation and encouragement for evangelism and missions? So the title of this podcast is going to be a little different. I'm titling it Limited Atonement and Global Missions. And though those two words don't seem like they go together, Limited Atonement and Global Missions. Or to think about it this way, Does the doctrine of particular redemption, the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross specifically for the elect, does that kill evangelism and missions or does it bring power and efficacy to global missions? So there's a lot of things we're going to talk about in this podcast. And so as I'm thinking about this doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement, or the extent, or the design, or the intent of the atonement, there's a lot of questions that can be asked about this particular topic. The main question that you want to begin with is, what was God's intention, or what was God's design, in having Jesus die on the cross to bear sin? Was God's intention for Jesus to die on the cross so that... There would be a possibility that whoever would believe could take advantage of what Christ did for them on the cross, a potential salvation. Or did Jesus, when he died on the cross, specifically and particularly and efficaciously, did he actually atone for, propitiate God's wrath, redeem actual sinners while hanging on that cross? That's, that's the real crux of the issue. What was God's intention? 
in the atonement. And what I believe the Bible teaches is that God's intention, God's design from the very beginning was that Jesus would die specifically for those whom the Father had given Him before the foundation of the world and for those only. If you take the view that Jesus died on the cross to make salvation possible, then there could be a potentiality that nobody would ever be saved. Or, if Jesus died actually on the cross to atone specifically for those whom were given to Him, then His atonement was a real atonement. And there's really two images that I want us to look at before we jump into this whole idea of global um, missions and global evangelism. And, And the two images that I really want us to think about in looking at limited atonement or particular redemption are the Passover in Exodus 12 and, and marriage. Those are two really weird things to, to, to put together, but just, just hang with me. Last night in our Wednesday night class, um, I'm teaching through the book of Hebrews, and you may be listening to those, those podcasts as well because they're, the, they're up there on, our, on both of our sites, our church's website as well as here on the Understanding Christianity podcast. And uh, last night we were dealing with the, the Passover, and we're looking at Hebrews 11 where it talks about Moses, how he sprinkled the blood and how he celebrated the Passover and how how the destroyer did not destroy the Israelites. And, and somebody in the class made a comment, and I didn't really go further on that comment for the sake of time, but um, it's a comment that I've heard before, and it's a comment that I, I actually disagree with. The comment was something like this, if I remember correctly. They asked uh, something like this, or they said, you know, if, if there was a sincere Egyptian who went and inquired and asked the Israelites, what they were doing and why they were doing the blood atonement, then if they would have done the same thing, they would have been saved. And so the answer to the question is, what's the intention or the design of the Passover? Did God give instructions to the Egyptians on how to atone for sin? Was the intention of the Passover strictly for the Israelites Or was it for all the nations that were there? Was it for the pagan nations? Was it for the the Egyptians, the Moabites, the Canaanites? Or was it specifically for the Israelites? The text tells us that the instructions were given specifically to the Israelites. So I believe that in the Passover, you see a limited atonement. You see a particular redemption. God's intention in the Passover was to atone only for the sins of the Israelites. Let's read about the Passover for just a moment. It's in Exodus chapter 12. Let's pick up in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians." And when he sees the blood on the lintel and then on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised you, you shall keep his service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord. The Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and 
worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, and the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me. Also, in the Passover, God gave instructions to Moses, did not give instructions to Pharaoh. There was not a provision of atonement for the Egyptians. So God did something particular and special for the Israelites that he did not do for the Egyptians. And so even in the Passover itself, you see specificity, you see particularity, you see a limitation on not the efficacy, the efficacy, not a limitation on on what the Passover would do. It fully atoned for their sins. The angel of death passed over, but it's a limitation in scope. It was only limited to the Israelites. It was not for the Egyptians. So even in a type and shadow in the Old Testament, in the Passover, from the very beginning, you see a limitation in the intent and the design of a blood atonement, specifically for the Israelites, that God did something for the Israelites that He did not do for the Egyptians, namely, the provision of a substitutionary atonement. Now, we could even go on and talk about the Day of Atonement, where the high priest goes in and represents the sins of the people, and he's got the breast, uh, you know, the breast stones on his, on his garment, on his ephod, embedded with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, as well as on his shoulders. And he goes in and he, he sacrifices for the sins of the people. He doesn't go in for the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. He specifically goes in and makes atonement for the Israelites. So even in the Old Testament, Day of Atonement, and in the Passover, from the very beginning, God has shown a limitation to the atonement. Now, when you go to the book of Ephesians, Paul is is making an argument about marriage. He's talking about how you walk in the Holy Spirit and how you're filled with the Holy Spirit and how this fleshes itself out in the most intimate of human relationships, husbands and wives, parents, children. And then when he gets to husbands, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives. He could have just stopped right there. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, and we would all, most world religions, even Islam, even Buddhism, even Hinduism, they would have no problem with that. Just love your wives, depending on how you define love. Husbands, love your wives. Even our culture would say that. What, what non-Christian out there would say, you know, husbands don't really, you know, don't love your wives. And so that's a generic statement. But notice how Paul makes it Christ-centered, gospel-centered, and brings in a teaching on the atonement. Husbands, love your wives as or just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Now, it's interesting the way that Paul does this. Paul says there's a, there's a unique situation, a parallel here, between the way a husband loves his wife and the way Christ loves the church. Now, how did Christ 
love the church. Notice it was in past tense, as Christ loved. Husbands, present tense. Husbands, you presently, in the present, keep on continually loving your wives. How? Just as Christ loved, past tense, the church, and gave, past tense, himself up for her. So how did Jesus love the church? He gave himself up for her on the cross. Okay, so what's the parallel here between marriage? Unless we are polygamists, unless we are polyamorist or whatever you want to call it, unless you believe that God's intention is for humans to have multiple partners in marriage, when a husband loves his wife, it is limited. It is limited to her. It's limited to her alone. It's an exclusive love that a husband has exclusively for his wife. Now that does not mean that the husband doesn't love other women. He just does not love other women in the same way he's supposed to love his wife. For example, if on a Sunday morning, if I stood up and said, you know, I love all of the women at Emmanuel Baptist Church in the same way that I love my wife... Every single one of you, every single person in the, in the audience would be aghast and say, that, that's, that's crazy. That's dumb, Sean. You're not a very good husband. You're, you're supposed to love your wife exclusively. When you stood in 19, on June 18, 1994, when you stood before friends and family and you had your wedding ceremony and your father, my father, Greg Cole, married us, we said our vows, we exchanged vows, and we pledged, we committed, we covenanted that we would exclusively love each other and no one else. And that's what a husband does. A husband pledges to love his wife exclusively, sacrificially, unconditionally, in a way that he shows devotion and love to no other woman. And we don't have a problem with that, do we? Nobody here would argue with that. Nobody would say, you know what, if you're exclusively loving your wife, you're really not being loving. Now, that's a virtue for husbands to exclusively love their wives. It's a, it's a Christian godly virtue. So we don't have a problem with the limitation, with the specificity, uh, with this limited love that a husband has for his wife that he shows to no other woman. We don't have a problem with that. But what do often people have problems with? People will have a problem with the whole idea that, now you're saying that Jesus didn't die for every single person that ever lived. He only died for his elect. He only showed a specific love for his elect. That Christ only loved the church. And I say yes, because the scripture right here says it. How much more clear could it be? Husbands, love your wives. Okay, how am I to love my wife? In the same exact way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ gave himself up for the church. And so in the Passover, you see a limitation. In marriage, in the way that Paul links the atonement to marriage, you see a limitation. But let's see how the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, both written by the beloved Apostle John, let's notice the metaphor that John uses to tie the limitation of the atonement to global missions. This is in John chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you may want to turn to John chapter 10. This is where Jesus is teaching on being the good shepherd. It's one of his seven I am statements that he makes in the gospel of John. 
And so let's pick up in verse 14, John chapter 10, verse 14. These are the words of Jesus. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Let's just talk about some issues in this passage of Scripture. Obviously, Jesus is saying that He is the Good Shepherd. Why is He the Good Shepherd? Well, first of all, He knows His own. Now, it's interesting terminology. I know my own, and my own know me. So there's a limitation. Who are the own that Jesus knows? He, he's got an own, okay? Jesus has got a people that he knows, that they're his own. They belong to him. Well, you may say, well, h- how do these people belong to Jesus? Well, an Arminian or somebody else would say, well, once you use your free will to trust Christ and quote, ask Jesus into your heart, then you become one of his own. You weren't his own before that, but once you choose him, you become his own. But the Gospel of John will not allow us to take that interpretation. We don't have time to do this. You can listen to previous podcasts, but back in John chapter 6, we find out that the Father has given a people to Jesus. Paul says that we were predestined before the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 14 and chapter 16 tell us that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So there was a group of people, Christ's own, that were given to Him before the foundation of the world. We would call that the elect, believers. And when Jesus died on the cross, He died for His own. He died for the bride. He died specifically for those whom the Father had given him. Now, in this passage of Scripture, it goes on to to, to explain in more full detail who the own are. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm dying on the cross. I have authority to lay down my life for the sheep. Now, for is a very important word. It's the Greek little preposition huper. It's very strong in the original language. It means in the place of, on behalf of, as a substitute for. It stresses the substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement. He is literally laying down His life in the place of His own, in the place of the sheep. Very specific group of people. Now, we also know that the Bible talks about sheep and goats. Does Jesus lay down His life for the goats? Does Jesus lay down His life for those who are unbelievers? You can say it this way. If it's not, this is a lighter weight way of, of really talking about limited atonement. You, you can say it this way. It's not as strong, but it, but it means the same thing. You can say, Jesus died on the cross for all those who would believe in Him. 
Now, Arminians would say, well, you know, I, I, I agree with that too. Jesus died on the cross for all those who would believe in him. Unless, you, unless you're a universalist and believe everybody's going to heaven, you have to believe that only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. It's just the difference is we as Calvinists believe that only those who believe in Jesus and only those who are going to believe in Jesus are the elect. Those whom God has given Jesus before the foundation of the world. They and only they are the ones who are going to believe because they are the ones specifically whom Christ died for. And so it says here that Jesus died for the sheep. He knows his own. But there's a very interesting statement that Jesus makes right after that. In verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Okay, who? what's Jesus talking about here? In the Gospel of John, who is Jesus' primary audience that he's talking to? Jews. Jewish people. He's saying here, I'm talking to you, Jews, but I have other sheep. I have other sheep. In other words, there are some sheep out there that are mine, that I died for, that I laid down my life for. I've got to bring them in. There's not two different groups. There's not Jews and there's not Gentiles because Jesus says there's going to be one shepherd and one flock. So there's one body of Christ. And what Jesus is saying here is, in my current audience, in, my, in the audience present right now, I, you're the sheep of the Jews. And I'm laying down my life for you, whom, whom the Father's given me, my own. But I also have Gentiles that are scattered throughout the world that are still my sheep. And I'm going to bring them into the fold so there will be one flock. Now, if you look at another place in the Gospel of John, it helps us understand this metaphor that he has other sheep. In John eleven, fifty through 52 it says, Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die, this is Caiaphas, the, the high priest, that, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you see the connection? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have my own. I have the sheep, the sheep, not two sheeps, the sheep. There are some of the sheep that are Jewish, but there are other sheep that are not of the fold. They have to be brought in because there's going to be one flock. And so Caiaphas, not, not knowing any better, basically says that Jesus dies for those given to him out of the Jews, but not also for the Jews, but the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's a key phrase, the scattered abroad children of God. Or in other words, you can think of it this way. Jesus Christ has sheep that are scattered throughout the world. And they must be brought in. How are they brought in? They are brought in through the preaching of the gospel. 
Now, here's the thing that happens. If you go on further, you read what Jesus is saying. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he goes down there and he says in verse 25, we're back in chapter 10. Jesus answered them. This is the feast of dedication. The Jews are gathering around him. And they're asking him if he's the Christ. They want to know plainly. Here, here's Jesus' answer. I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Here's the key. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Why are the Pharisees, why are these Jewish leaders not believing? The reason they're not believing is because they're not sheep. It does, Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you believe in me, you can become one of my sheep. In other words, the way you become a sheep is you believe. So you're not a sheep, then you believe, then you become a sheep. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the very fact that you're not believing in me right now proves that you're not a sheep. You're not one of my own. You're not given to me by the Father. You're not among the elect. You aren't part of my flock. Because if you had been, you would believe. And then he goes on to make it even clearer. He says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. Now here's where global evangelism comes in. Think of it this way. Right now in the world, all over the world, Jesus has scattered sheep. The children of God scattered abroad, and He says, I must bring them in. And so when we do evangelism, and when we do missions, and when we do church planning, what is our job? Our job is to go proclaim the gospel so that the sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd. And what does Jesus say? When my sheep hear my voice, my own, they will know me and they will follow me. I've got sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. Where are these sheep? These sheep are scattered abroad all throughout the world. So the goal of missions, the goal of evangelism is to go to all the world indiscriminately because we don't know who the sheep are. We tell every single person we come in contact with the gospel. And here's the beauty of it. If the gospel goes out to one of the scattered sheep, they will hear the voice of the shepherd and they will come and they will follow. Why? Because they're Jesus' own. They're part of the flock. Now, they're not in the flock yet because they're still scattered, but they will be brought into the flock when they hear the voice of the shepherd. Now, how do they hear the voice of the shepherd? We go in the power of the gospel and proclaim the gospel with authority, and we call all people everywhere to repent and believe in a crucified and risen Savior. So missions is the in-gathering of God's sheep that are scattered abroad into one flock. That's the image from John chapter 10. Now, John, the same writer of the gospel, also wrote the book of Revelation. And he expounds upon this imagery in Revelation chapter 5. This is the throne room of heaven where John sees the lion slash lamb. 
go take the scroll of destiny out of the hand of the Father and approach the throne. And then the elders, the 24 elders and the four living creatures and everybody bows down in heaven, focused on King Jesus, and they worship Him with a new song. And what are the lyrics of the new song that they sing? It's very, very interesting. I want you to think about this imagery of scattered sheep abroad. Listen to Revelation chapter 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, literally slaughtered. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is the slaughtered lamb. On the cross, when he died, he ransomed people. Now, what does that mean to ransom? It's from a group of Greek words that really means to purchase or to buy. It really means to buy out of slavery. And so the question you've got to ask is this, and this is, a, this is really the, the main issue of limited atonement. When Jesus died on the cross, did he get what he paid for? Did he literally ransom people? Did he literally propitiate God's wrath against sin? Did he really obtain eternal redemption for anybody, or was it all a potentiality? Did Jesus die so as to make salvation possible? If one day down the road you would trust in him, then the benefits of the atonement are yours. Or, when Jesus hung on the cross, did He specifically and particularly die for a particular people and do all things required to purchase them? Did He appease God's wrath on their behalf, or did He not? Did He reconcile them to the Father, or did He not? Did He ransom them out of spiritual slavery to sin, or did He not? Did He die in their place, or did He not? Did He just make it a potentiality? I don't think you can argue it's a potentiality because the language used of the atonement is that Jesus actually atoned for sin. He paid for sin. And here in Revelation it says, He ransomed people. Okay, He ransomed people for God. Very, very another important preposition. From. From every tribe, language, and people, and nation. I want you to notice, John here protects this whole idea of universal atonement. He doesn't say that Jesus bought every single person. Read it carefully. Jesus does not say, or the, the, John does not say, this new song in Revelation does not say that Jesus purchased every single people. He, didn't, he doesn't say he purchased all tribes, all tongues, all nations. What does it say? Very specifically, He ransomed people out of. It's the Greek preposition ek. It means out of. So there are particular people that were particularly ransomed when Jesus historically died on the cross that were bought or paid for out of all nations, tribes, and peoples. In other words, the scattered sheep, the people of God. Who are these? They're, they're people, they're sheep that are out of every tribe, tongue, 
people and nation. These are, these are people groups. So the mandate of missions is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that these scattered sheep who are out of all tribes, tongues, nations, and people will hear the gospel and be brought into the one flock under the authority of the chief shepherd, Jesus, who is the slaughtered lamb. The sheep will hear his voice. Think about all these images together. What does Jesus say? I know my own. I have an own. I own a people. I lay down my life for that people. They're called the sheep. The reason you're not believing is because you're not a sheep. If you are a sheep, you will hear my voice, you will know me, and you will follow me. And I've got other sheep that are not a part of this fold. I've got to go to them. Who are these sheep? They're the people of God scattered abroad. They're they're those that Jesus paid for out of every tribe, nation, people, group around the world. And so what is missions? Missions is going in the power of the gospel to make sure that the sheep hear his voice. And when they hear his voice, they will come to him. Gives great confidence to missions. It's not a failing endeavor. As a matter of fact, limited atonement gives us guaranteed success in missions. Because here's the reality. When we send missionaries to go and to preach and to teach and to share and to church plant, we can send them with the utmost confidence that through their preaching of the gospel, God will gather His sheep that are scattered from all over the world, they will hear Christ's voice. They will be brought into one flock. You know what? I wouldn't give a dime to missions or pray for missionaries or go on any mission trips or do anything related to missions if I did not believe this truth, that God has His own, His scattered sheep that have been purchased by Jesus on the cross throughout the world. Our job is just to go and announce the gospel so that these sheep can hear His voice. Now, we don't know the identity of these sheep. We don't know who the elect are. We don't have that privilege. Never in the Bible are we told to go only preach to the elect or or those who show evidence of being the elect. We are told to preach the gospel to all creation. God knows who His sheep are. Jesus says, I know who my own are. I know who my sheep are. I died for them. We don't. So we go in... The confidence that when we preach the gospel, Jesus will do the work through the power of the Holy Spirit to irresistibly draw the sheep to himself. Now, this is something that even Paul himself struggled with. It reminds me of a time when Paul was having a sleepless night in Corinth over the lostness of the city that he had gone to plant a church in, and he was afraid. He was ready to give up. He didn't think there would be any evangelistic success in this pagan city of Corinth. And so at a low point in his life as a missionary, not seeing a lot of success, seeing pagan idolatry, wondering, God, are you even at work in this town? In the midst of this turmoil, Jesus himself comes to Paul in a dream and reveals something to him very important about missions and evangelism. Jesus is going to tell Paul basically the same thing that he told his disciples in John chapter 10. Listen to Acts chapter 18, 9 through 11. Paul's in Corinth. 
And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Powerful words from Jesus. Number one, he says, don't be afraid, Paul. I am with you. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. Paul, I'm reminded you of the Great Commission. I am with you. So keep on preaching. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Why? I'm with you. But here's my guarantee, Paul. I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, it's the same theme. What is Jesus saying to Paul? Paul, I've got my own in Corinth. I've got my sheep in Corinth. The the scattered children of God, they are in Corinth. Those whom I've ransomed with my own blood, they're here in this city. Now, you don't know who they are yet, but I have my own. But here's what you do. You don't know the identity of the elect. You don't know who my sheep are. Your responsibility is to not be silent and to go on preaching. And what does Paul do? Paul stays there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. It motivated him to stay another year and a half preaching the gospel. That's what he needed to hear. He needed to hear the truth that Jesus has his scattered sheep in that city and all Paul needs to do is he doesn't need to go try to figure out who the identity of the sheep are. He just needs to go preach the gospel. He needs to not be silent. And when he preaches the gospel, when the the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd through the preaching of the gospel, those scattered sheep will come into the fold because Jesus says they are mine. I bought them out of every tribe, nation, tongue, people, and they will be under one flock Under one shepherd, they will hear my voice and they will come. So I don't know what gives us greater encouragement, motivation, stamina, confidence in doing the work of evangelism and global missions than the truth of the doctrine of predestination and limited atonement and irresistible grace. It's interesting Some people say the doctrines of grace, that the tenets of Calvinism undercut evangelism. They're the death knoll of of missions. But when you read Jesus' words in the Gospel of John about a sheep, when you see who Jesus died for in Revelation chapter 5, and then when you hear His words to Paul while He's in Corinth, it all comes into focus. God has sovereignly chosen a people for Himself before the foundation of the world and given those people as a love gift to His Son. That's the doctrine of unconditional election. Jesus, while on the cross, literally, specifically, historically, truly, paid for, died in the place of, propitiated the wrath of, ransom, reconciled those sheep, those whom the Father had given him. It wasn't a possibility. It wasn't a potentiality. It wasn't a hypothetical atonement. It was a true atonement. He 
ransom people for God out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. He laid down his life for the sheep. He gave himself up for the church. And then at the preaching of the gospel at a point in time, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit effectually calls the sheep so that they do hear the voice of the shepherd and they come into the fold through sovereign regeneration. You see, you have an unfrustrated, conquering trinity going about securing our salvation. The Father elects the same group of people. The Son specifically dies for that same group of people, and the Holy Spirit effectually calls that same group of people so that infallibly it secures their salvation. As opposed to the idea where Jesus dies on the cross to make salvation possible, with the idea that nobody would come in faith. Or the idea that the Holy Spirit woos and the Holy Spirit um, convinces, but He doesn't actually sovereignly regenerate. Therefore, you can resist the working of the Holy Spirit. In the end, what you've got is the Father electing a people and giving those people to Jesus, and then Jesus not really dying on the cross for those people, really not dying on the cross for anybody, dying a potential death in the hopes that someday, maybe, people would use their free will to come. And then you have people with the, that are being wooed by the Holy Spirit, and then them resisting the Holy Spirit and not coming to faith in Christ. That's a frustrated trinity. That's a, that's a wimpy trinity. That's a God that's trying to save people but really can't. God did all He could do in electing them. Jesus did all He could do by dying on the cross. And the Holy Spirit's doing all He can do to try to convince them. But at the end of the day, they're frustrated. That is not the gospel we preach. That's not the God we believe in. We believe in a conquering God. We believe in a sovereign God. We believe in an unfrustrated trinity. The Father elects. The Son dies. The Holy Spirit effectually calls and regenerates. And He does it for the same group of people so that they will infallibly and irresistibly come to faith in Christ. And we have the confidence that when we go out with the gospel and we share the gospel, that God will call those people to Himself. And it it liberates you. Because at the end of the day, you're not responsible for manipulating decisions. You're not responsible for doing all these weird type of techniques to somehow cajole people into a response. You don't have to dim the lights and play soft music and try to do just as I am 50 times and arm twist and do all of these types of things. All you have to do is clearly present the gospel in such a way that the sheep can hear the voice of the shepherd. And when they do so, what does Jesus say? They are my own. I lay down my life for them. They will come. That gives me great confidence. That lifts the burden off my back to know that all I'm responsible for is what Jesus told Paul. What did Jesus tell Paul in Acts? Paul, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. That's our only responsibility. God is with us. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. He's with us to the end of the age. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. What a liberation. All our our job is is just to keep preaching the gospel. Keep sharing with your friends. Keep testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just keep doing it. Do it to everybody. To every person you come in contact with, share the gospel. And you know it will be a success. Because in that, 
the means God uses to bring about His elect is your words, your testimony, your example, your sharing of the gospel. And Jesus will bring the sheep into one fold. And we will all be under His rule and reign as our chief shepherd. So in the end, does Calvinism kill evangelism and missions? I would argue the exact opposite. Instead, it emboldens, it strengthens, it motivates and encourages our evangelism and missions because we know it's not a fool's errand. We go knowing that God will succeed. I hope you've benefited from listening to this podcast on limited atonement and global missions. Again, if you have any questions or comments or would like to, 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 to contact me in any way, let me just give you my email. It's sean, S-E-A-N, at E-B-C. That's the, the initials for Emmanuel Baptist Church. So sean at E-B-C hyphen or dash online dot O-R-G. Again, it's sean at E-B-C dash online dot O-R-G. Website is seancole.net. And so, until the next time that we have another podcast, uh, hopefully you're enjoying the preachings through the Gospel of John that we're uploading on our Sunday morning worship service, uh, the Wednesday night teachings through the book of Hebrews. From time to time, I come in with just some ramblings on different issues when I have time throughout the, the week to do that. And so, God bless you. Make His face shine upon you. And until next time, may you just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And may you have a great day in the Lord. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. This is Pastor Sean Cole.